Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we come this morning to your word and we're thankful for it. We're thankful that you've preserved it for us through the ages, that we may have it even now. We've heard it read in a familiar, common language, but Lord, we pray for more than just hearing, earthly hearing and common hearing. We pray, oh God, that you would give us spiritual hearing, or that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wondrous things. We pray that by the ministry of your spirit, you would move, or that you would teach us and train us, correct us, yes, even rebuke us. Oh God, use the preaching of your word to make us more like Jesus and to live for him. Lord, encourage your people this morning. Help us in our time of need. And Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant. Father, that you would protect me from error. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, oh God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The lengths that people will go to acquire a treasure are amazing. How far someone will go to get their hands on a treasure is amazing. Years ago, the story goes, a, a San Diego bank hired a private investigator to track down a bank robber and retrieve the stolen funds. The search led to Mexico. The investigator crossed the border and then realizing that he would need a Spanish interpreter, because he didn't speak Spanish, opened the phone book. Those of you old enough to remember that. He opened the phone book and he hired the first interpreter listed in the yellow pages. After many days, he finally captured the bandit. And through the interpreter, he asked him, where did you hide the money? In Spanish, the thief replied, what money? I have no idea what you're talking about. With that, the investigator drew his pistol. He pointed it right at the suspect and said to the interpreter, tell him that if he doesn't tell me where the money is, I will shoot him right where he stands. Upon receiving this message, the bank robber said to the interpreter, sir, I have hidden the money in a coffee can. It's under the fourth floorboard in the second floor men's bathroom of the Palacio Hotel on Via del in La Paz. What did he say? 
the investigator asked the interpreter. Sir, the interpreter said, as he thought for a moment, he says he's prepared to die like a man right where he stands. (laughs) Before us this morning here in Exodus 18 and 19 stands a reminder of the links that God has gone and the links that God continues to go to both acquire and keep a people for himself, a people that he calls, and we just read it there in chapter 19, verse 5, my treasured possession. Literally, it's my treasured possession for myself. Of course, there's no trickery with God, just sovereign grace, just consuming passion to redeem and to establish his own holy nation, his own kingdom of priests here on this earth which he created. Chapters 18 and 19 find the people of Israel in a transition. That's why I'm covering them together. It's a a transition here that Israel's going through. It's a transition from slavery to freedom, from a wandering group of people to an established nation planted in the promised land. A transition that, unbeknownst to them at this time, will last longer than two chapters. A transition that will last longer than they could ever imagine for generations. Nevertheless, here, at the beginning of this transition, we find God in his great mercy and his great patience, both providing for the needs of the people as well as pointing them to the glories of who they are becoming as he works to fulfill his promises to them and as he works to set them apart as his own treasured possession for himself. And here in these two chapters, we find him doing this. We find him providing for their needs and pointing them to their identity as his people in four, four specific ways. So the first of these four ways is found in 18, 1 through 12. So 18, 1 through 12 is where we find the first of these ways, and it can be summarized in one word, salvation. If you're taking notes, and I know lots of you like to, this is the first of four points this morning. Salvation. Since leaving Egypt, the people of Israel have been on a journey. They've come through the wilderness of Shur. They've come through Marha, through Elam, through the wilderness of Sin, through Rephidim, And now finally, they've come to the wilderness before Sinai. That they are returning to Sinai should not be a surprise. We shouldn't be surprised that this is where they have come to. For when Moses encountered God back in chapter 3, verse 12, do you remember when Moses went up onto the mountain and there he met God uh, at the burning bush? In verse 12, God told him, and I quote, and you can look there, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God tells them that when you bring the people out, you will come back here and you will serve. You will minister on this mountain. So through all that Moses had endured with the people, his sights have been set on returning to Sinai all along. And this is confirmed in the text. It's confirmed by what happens at the beginning of chapter 18. Apparently, 
according to verses 2 and 3, Moses had sent his wife Zipporah and his two children, Gershom and Eliezer, back to live with his father-in-law, Jethro, while he went to Egypt. And now that Jethro has heard of all that God had done for Moses and the people, they meet back at the rendezvous point, right? They come back here to Sinai. Turn with me in chapter 18. We're going to look together at verses 7 through 12 to see what happens next. Chapter 18, verses 7 through 12. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. And that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Then Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, maybe you don't remember a lot from the beginning of the book of Exodus, but I don't want you to forget a very important fact about Jethro. Jethro's a Midianite. Jethro's a Midianite priest, to be exact. He serves another god, or at least he used to. Moses shares the gospel with him. That's what you just heard. Moses shares the gospel with him, not the gospel how we might share it today, but he does share good news nonetheless. Moses tells him the good news of how God had defeated the false gods of the Egyptians and delivered them from their bondage. And how does Jethro respond? How does he respond? He rejoices for all the good that the Lord, as we were reminded even last week by Todd, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He calls him Yahweh, all the good that Yahweh had done. And then he makes this confession. In verses 10 through 12, we see that he acknowledges God as Yahweh, the covenant God of his people. He professes that Yahweh is above all other gods. That would include the God he was serving as a Midianite priest up until this point. He offers a burnt offering and sacrifices to Yahweh. That's what worshipers of Yahweh do. And then he shares a meal of fellowship with Aaron and all the other elders. This fellowship meal likely would have been the meat that came from those offerings. It's amazing to think. Jethro. Jethro hears of Yahweh and then he believes. Salvation has come to the house of Israel for sure. But it has also come to the house of Jethro. As well, Here we have a living picture of God's grace toward the nations. Remember, God had promised to Abraham, right, that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. Jethro's a picture of God's promise to bring in people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to worship him as the one and only true and living God. He did it for Jethro here. If you follow along in the story, 
they'll do it for the likes of Rahab and Ruth and others, just as he did for you and me. As Paul points out in Colossians 1, Paul says that God delivered us from the domain of darkness, out of that futility of serving other gods, and he brought us to himself. God transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jethro, Jethro, the Midianite priest, is the believer in Yahweh. So we see here in this time of transition, God's people are celebrating salvation. They're still celebrating their own being delivered from Egypt, but they're also celebrating here as Jethro believes. That's first. The second of the four ways in which God provides for the people's needs and points them to their identity as his people can be found in 13 through 27 of chapter 18, the rest of the chapter. And it can be summarized by this word, administration. Administration. That's the second of our four points. The text tells us that the very next, the very next day, Jethro now has some advice, some common grace advice to Moses. Advice that serves not to only help him, but that will serve to bless the people as well. We get from the whole text that Moses had been hearing cases. He's a judge. He's been listening to disputes between the people. And he's been doing it all by himself. All by himself. Think about this. How many people are there? We know it's about 600,000 men. So include the women and children. It's likely almost 2 million people. Do you think they have disputes with each other? I mean, my family of four, living in the comforts of our home, have disputes. Surely these people and all that they've been through have disputes. So-and-so's ox has gored my donkey or whatever, you know, or I went over there and I got tread upon by the wagon. Who knows, right? These things are happening, and they're coming before him to settle these disputes. God has already given some laws to the people throughout, and Moses is there hearing that and instructing people, and he's doing it all by himself. Poor Moses. But what about the people? Talk, what about them? Imagine the stress that's on the people. Talk about an overcrowded justice system. Put yourselves in their sandals for a moment. Wouldn't standing around, look at verse 13. It says, from morning until evening. Waiting to be heard. Wouldn't that be frustrating? All you want is justice, someone to listen to you. But how long would it be until you received it? Would you make it that day? Or would you have to just stay there and keep your spot for the next? So hence, Jethro's advice. Look down. Beginning at verse 17. Verses 17, and I'll read through 23. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. 
You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So right here in Exodus chapter 18, we have the record of the establishment of elders to oversee God's people. Uh, God's people Israel, and it's an establishment that continues even in the church today. Why we have elders in the church today, why they were spoken of in Jesus' day, and as well in the early New Testament day. Elders established over the people. You see, it was never God's intent to have one person, to have a, a single leader go at it alone in shepherding the people of God. God's design is for his people to share the work of ministry among themselves. So Moses is instructed to select godly, capable men who can come alongside him to carry out the oversight of God's people. To do as verse 22 says, look, it says to bear the burden with him. To bear the burden with him. But the blessing is not just for Moses. It was for the people as well. Verse 23 makes that very clear. I just read it. This people also will go to their place in peace. The people will have peace. This administration was intended for peace. So despite some popular opinion, organizational structure, administration in the church is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. When done God's way, it most certainly leads to blessing and to peace. When leaders share the ministry among themselves and with the people to whom they are charged to lead, the whole church can effectively work together to accomplish the mission to which they've been called. I mean, here at the chapel, here at the Granville Chapel, we've embraced God's design. And we've been blessed with leaders. We've been blessed with officers like elders and, and deacons. And we have other lay leaders. We met some of our, our lay leaders who are women for the women's team this morning. We have staff members. We have others of you leading in various ways. We need all of us to come along and share the work of ministry, to come alongside and bear the burden together. And we need our elders, we need our officers to call on every part of the body to use their gifts to love and serve one another in our community. That's God's design for his people, even as early as Exodus chapter 18. Yes, we're a kingdom of priests, we're all ministering and serving together, but God in his great grace and in his providence, establishes this administration over the people. And when we follow God's way, we can expect God's blessing and we can expect his peace to follow. So we see here, in this time of transition for Israel, the Lord is providing for them. He's pointing them to who they are to be in him. And he's calling them, and they do, to embrace his chosen system of administration. That's two, let's look at three. The third of the four ways in which God provides and points can be found in 19, 1 through 6. And I read that earlier, and it can be summarized by the word consecration. Consecration. That's our third 
of four points, consecration. And again, we're looking at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 19, which I have already read. Most commentators point to these verses uh, as being the heart of the book of Exodus. The heart of the book of Exodus is here. Um, it's the figurative mountaintop on Israel's journey to the mountain of Sinai. In these verses, something special is happening. We find God establishing yet another covenant relationship with his people. Now, covenant might be a, a new word to some of you, and we certainly don't have time to go into all the nuances, but let me just say this, that covenant is how God enters into and expresses relationship to his people. Right? Covenant is the very bond of his gracious relationship with us. We've talked about his covenant that he made with Abraham. We know the covenant that he made with Noah. Here we have the covenant he's making with Moses. And of course, there's the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. We can talk about those later when we come to them. But here what we see is God establishing this covenant with Moses. And the word covenant is used there in the text. It's how God enters into relationship. So we call this one, we call it the Mosaic Covenant, and it follows the pattern that you often see when covenants are made. God identifies himself and recounts what he's done for the people, and then God lays out the terms of the covenant along with blessings that come with obedience and curses that come with disobedience. Now, we don't have all of these elements here in 19.1 through 6, but... This is an expository preaching exercise we're doing. So guess what? We'll get to all of it in the coming weeks. We will see all of these aspects of the covenant relationship laid out. And we'll speak more about it week by week as we come to those things. But what we do see here is God's promise to set apart this people for himself. He's setting them apart as his treasured possession, as his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. Think about it. These people have witnessed firsthand. They've experienced firsthand all that God has done for them. They know that he is the one true God. So notice what God does here. He uses a word picture using the imagery of the eagle. He reminds them that like a bird of prey, right, God sought out his people in Egypt. He hunted his people in Egypt, but he didn't devour them. He devoured Egypt. He devoured the false gods of Egypt. And then, what you least expect from a bird of prey, God takes his people and puts them on the wings of the eagle and brings them out safely. God wants them to know that he has chosen them. God wants them to know that he has rescued them. God wants them to know that he is consecrating them to set them apart for himself. They will be his holy people. And he has a purpose for his holy people. He's called them to himself for faith. He's called them to himself for obedience to him in this world. He's brought them to this mountain to give them his law, to teach them how they are to live in freedom for him. That sounds almost counterintuitive, doesn't it? That God will give his law to teach them how to live in freedom? I mean, today I hear a lot of people saying, I want freedom from law. 
But the only true freedom that can ever be found is the freedom found in living for God according to his law. His commandments are not burdensome, John reminds us. Now listen, this isn't a type of legalism or moralism, for God's law is not a means for salvation. It was never a means for salvation. And furthermore, we must admit that we cannot even begin to keep God's law without his supernatural help. But we can't also just throw away his law. His law is given as provision. It's provision for how we, his people, how Israel, his people can respond to his faithfulness in faithfulness. And how we can live for him in the freedom that he provides. Next week when we get to the Ten Commandments, that's what we're going to talk about. God says, I'm the God who set you free. I'm the God who delivered you. Now here's the pasture that you can run in in freedom and find joy in me. That's what God's doing. So in this time of transition, God is consecrating his people. He's establishing a covenant with them. God is setting them apart to be his people for his own possession. And so the fourth and final of the four ways in which God provides for the people's needs and points them to their identity as his people is found in 7 through 25 of chapter 19. And we're going to summarize it with this word, mediation. That is the last of our four points, mediation. Now we're going to return to some of these verses next week as we come to the Ten Commandments. But for today, I want you to look with me just at verses 16 through 20. 19, 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Wow. Just seems right to pause for just a second. You realize what's happening? Theophany, God is appearing, descends there upon the mountain. And I'm sure everyone was shaking in their sandals. Three times in all of chapter 19, Moses ascends the mountain to enter into the presence of God, and each time he descends to share God's word with the people. If you read all of chapter 19, you'll see that. Three times he goes up, he comes down with a word. This series of ascents and descents, it accomplishes just three things, and I'll point this out quickly because it's important. First, it affirms the holiness of God. God is holy. Everything about which we just read serves to verify the awesome majesty and holiness of God. The, the, the thick cloud and the smoke, the loud trumpet blasts, the thunder and the lightning, the shaking of the mountain. All of it points to God's majesty 
holiness. Second, the series of ascents and descents along with the communications that follow serve to reassure Moses and all the people that God is still with them. To reassure them that God still loves them. That he's not ceased to provide for them. He always has been and always will be their covenant God. I mean, can you imagine the first time Moses goes up there? They're probably like, he ain't coming back. No way no one's coming back from that. And then he comes down. (laughs) Oh, wow. Of course, don't skip ahead. You all know what happens later, right? They actually get tired of waiting on them. And then they really mess things up. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. But again, put yourself there in their sandals. Only a holy God. There he is. Ascended upon the mountain. And Moses goes up and comes down. And every time he comes down with a word, it reassures the people that God really does love us. And he has a word for us. And the third thing that this series of ascents and descents accomplishes is confirming that Moses is God's undisputed mediator. Showing to the people that Moses is God's undisputed mediator. That God does not speak to Israel directly, but he mediates the message through Moses. In fact, throughout chapter 19, God warns the people. You can read it there. He warns the people of the punishment that will befall them if they seek to even touch the mountain. He tells them to consecrate themselves. He's just said he will consecrate them. Then he tells them to clean themselves up. He tells them to abstain from relations and all this, make themselves holy and clean to be there. And then he says, don't even touch it. Don't even come near. Tell the priest to not even look. Moses is the one. Moses is the one who goes up. The people need a mediator. The people need someone to stand between God and them. And God is providing that for them. He's providing mediation. He's doing it through Moses. And eventually we'll see Aaron as well. He will join Moses upon the mountain. They're mediators between God and his people. The people need a mediator. So in these two chapters, which I know I've covered quickly, we found God in his great mercy and great patience, providing for Israel's needs, pointing them to their identity as his people in those four ways, I'll say them again, salvation, administration, consecration, and mediation. Now what I want to do is I want to spend our final bit of time together offering what I hope are simple yet practical ways that we, who are still God's people today, can apply this to our lives. So let's look first with regard to salvation. With regard to salvation. one's pretty easy, right? Let's share the gospel with others. Let's share the good news. Let's be quick to share the good news of the gospel with others. In fact, as Mike reminded us in his greeting this morning, that's part of our vision here at the chapel, to share the gospel with others in both word and in deed. Hopefully you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you are a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian. If so, rejoice in our relationship with Jesus. Rejoice in your relationship with him. But don't stop there. Invite others. Tell others about him and what he has done. And I know some of you are sitting there going, well, I don't really have an exciting story to tell. Yes, you do. You were dead, but now you're alive in Christ. You have a great Savior who saved you and redeemed you. Go. Tell it on the mountain. Go and tell others. So I'll ask you, who do you know? That needs to hear the gospel. Who do you know? 
I pray that even now, a name would pop into your head. Who do you know that needs to hear the gospel? Share it with them. If you don't know how, come and talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Any leader will help you. Share the gospel with others. With regard to administration, let us thank God for the elders whom he's raised up here at the chapel. If you look in your bulletin, their names are there. Right after the benediction. Their names are listed there. Their phone numbers. The deacons are also listed as well as the, the staff. They're not there so they can say, hey, I finally reached the pinnacle. I got my name in the bulletin. No. They're there because they want to serve. They want to help. They want to help you. That's why their phone numbers are listed. Give them a call. Reach out. But let us pray for them. Our elders, our, our deacons, our staff, all of our leaders, we need prayer. We need prayer and we appreciate your prayer. You can encourage the elders in particular by using your gifts that God has given you to serve one another as Christ's body. So I'll ask you this, how might you be called to serve this church? I feel like I'm repeating myself from a sermon probably the last time I preached, like four weeks ago, right? We talked about gifts. So if you're like, well, I don't know what my gift is, I still haven't had you reach out to me yet. The invitation's there. Reach out to me, reach out to someone, let's talk. Let us serve the Lord together. With regard to consecration, I encourage you to delight. Delight in the truth that you've been set apart by God and for God. This is one of those applications of the heart. Delight in it. You are God's treasured possession. You might be like, I sure don't feel like it. I don't feel treasured at all. The way I'm treated by others, the way I feel about myself, I don't want to minimize that. I want to minister to you in that. And the best way I can do that from this place is to say, but you are God's treasured possession. You're created in his image and he loves you deeply. Embrace that, delight in that, turn to that in your time of need. Embrace the purpose that God has for you as his chosen and holy child. And don't find the law burdensome, but rather delight to pursue and to do God's will for his glory and your good. And ask him to help you because you need his help. You need his help. And finally, with regard to mediation, this one's like the softball that I don't want to miss and not hit out the park, right? Praise God for a better mediator than Moses. Praise God for a better mediator than Aaron. Praise God for sending Jesus Christ as the one true mediator between us and himself. For in Christ, we have full and total access to the Father. <laughs> Rejoice. By the way, those aren't my words. I'm not trying to diminish Moses and Aaron. Just read the book of Hebrews. You'll see it yourself. Jesus is the true and better mediator. He is the great mediator. He's both prophet, priest, and king, and sacrifice. In him, in him do we fully have relationship with God. I'll invite you to turn. I'll use the same words that the author of the book of Hebrews uses in chapter 12. So turn there with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 18 through 24. With Exodus 19 in his mind. And as only God can weave together for us. Hebrews 12, 18. 
through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. Thanks be to God for bringing us to Jesus. Bring us to himself through Jesus that we would be able to come to him in boldness and confidence and in joy that we belong unto him. Amen and amen.